Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 35. For the past two episodes, I've covered the various theories around the actual date of the Exodus. And if you think back a few weeks, assuming you're listening in real time and not binging at some unknown later date, anyway, the last Pharaoh I covered was Thutmose III. So, I'll start this episode with his successor, Amenhotep II, which puts us around the year 1427 BC. So let's get started. Amenhotep II was the seventh pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, which of course places him in the New Kingdom. He ruled from 1427 to 1401 BC. His father left him with a huge kingdom, and maintaining that kingdom proved easier than acquiring it, at least militarily. And while discussing his father, it's noteworthy that he was not his father's intended successor. Dad's firstborn son, Aminamahet, died before his father, so succession fell to the king's second son. And it's thought that Aminahet was not an infant when he died, as his name can be found on an inscription referring to his position as the overseer of the cattle, a job he took in his father's 24th year on the throne. He would die sometime in the next 11 years, and the actual date and cause of his death are unknown. What is known is that his death left Amenhotep as his father's successor, and this future pharaoh was born and raised in Memphis, in the north, which was unusual considering the capital at the time was Thebes. Similar to his older brother, he too was given a royal appointment. In his case, he was the overseer of wood deliveries to the dockyard in Memphis. And to me at least, this seems like a weird role for a crown prince, or even a second in line to the throne. He was also made the high priest over Lower Egypt. A couple of episodes ago, I teased that Amenhotep was very well known, or at least recorded, as being an unbelievable athlete and soldier. Several inscriptions have been uncovered that hype his athletic skills while he was a leader in the army, but before he became pharaoh. So, while his father was on the throne, given the time, the overhyping of his athletic and military prowess was probably meant to prepare the populace for his rule, as well as to establish his legitimacy. These inscriptions claim he was able to shoot an arrow completely through copper targets, But the feat is much more than that, quoting the inscription. He entered into the northern garden and found that there had been set up for him four targets of Asiatic copper of one palm in their thickness, with twenty cubits between one post and its fellow. Then his majesty appeared in a chariot like Montu, the god of war, in his power. He grasped his bow and gripped four arrows at the same time. So he rode northward, shooting at them like Montu in his regalia. His arrows had come out of the back while he was attacking another post. It was really a deed which had never been done nor heard of by report, shooting at a target of copper an arrow which came out and dropped to the ground, except for the king." And the drawing accompanying the inscription adds further detail. He shot these 3-inch or 8-centimeters thick copper targets while driving a chariot 
with the reins tied around his waist. The shot was so powerful that the arrow passed completely through the three inches of copper. Completely through solid metal. Completely ignoring the laws of physics. But hey, he was the pharaoh, and therefore not to be bothered with such details. He would be known throughout his reign for these feats, to the point that he was buried with his bow. But he wasn't just a charioteer and archer. He was able to row a navy ship faster and farther than 200 of the navy's professional rowers. It's unclear if these were 200 performing individually, or all rowing the same ship at the same time. Not that the distinction matters too much. Obviously, he was no modest fellow, and one thing modern researchers are really consistent on is that these claims were not to be taken literally, at least not with our 21st century sensibilities. Before Thutmose III died, Amenhotep was named as co-regent, a position he would hold for about two and a half years, until his father's death. He ended up taking the throne solely when he was 18 years old. Now, there were a few military expeditions to Syria, which I've mentioned in passing in the past two episodes, but in the end, he signed a peace treaty with the Mitanni, essentially ending the few conflicts in Canaan. But the details of the campaigns are worth covering, especially considering they occurred about the same time that the Israelites were still wandering. Amenhotep, at least in his first few years on the throne, carried on the tradition of his father, and that's of continuing military campaigns. His first recorded campaign was in his third year. While crossing the Orontes River, which is in the modern countries of Lebanon, Syria, and Turkey. Anyway, while crossing the river, he was attacked by the Kantna military. Kantna is a city in Syria. Not only did he defeat this force, but he also recovered their weapons including a Mitanni chariot. Most likely, there were numerous other spoils seized. Also in this same campaign, the king's personal feats were again in the spotlight. It's claimed that he single-handedly killed seven rebel princes at Kadesh, and with that came the end to his first Syrian campaign. On his way back to Egypt, he had the bodies of these seven princes hung upside down on the bow of his ship a warning to all those he came across in the region. But he wasn't quite done with his trophies. When he got back to Thebes, the bodies of six of the seven were mounted on the city walls. And the seventh? Well, that one was transported south to Egyptian territory in Nubia and hung on the city wall of Napata, this time as a warning to any Nubian contemplating rebellion, as they often did. And it apparently worked, as during his entire reign, inscriptions only recorded a small campaign in the southern territory. A few years later, in the spring of his seventh year, there was a rebellion in Syria, probably instigated by their regional enemy, the Mitanni. And for this campaign, there appear to have been no major battles, just a series of minor skirmishes. And, if we're still sticking with the 1446 BC date for the Exodus, this would have been while the Israelites were still wandering in the desert. A stele records the actions of the campaign. 
What is interesting about the stele, though, is what it leaves out. Some believe that the monument does not record the two weeks when Amenhotep would have been physically closest to the Mitanni. If true, it may indicate that his army suffered a defeat of some fashion in the short period, or it could indicate that nothing happened. His third and final campaign in Canaan was during his ninth year on the throne, and it was probably a bit more limited in geographic scope, with his forces not going further north than the Sea of Galilee. But if you rely on the records of the campaign, it was very productive, with 101,128 slaves taken, which is a really exact number. But given his demonstrated penchant for exaggeration, it was probably a bit inflated, maybe fat-fingered, or whatever the hammer and chisel version of that is. And just like that, he never went back to Canaan. If you believe what is recorded in Egypt, after his third campaign, the kings of Babylon, the Hittites, and Mitanni came to make peace and pay tribute to him. But you should know by now that his records are suspect, at best. A different, potentially more believable inscription records that the princes of the Mitanni came to seek peace with Amenhotep, and the geopolitical context of the region would support this. At the time, the Hittites were gaining power primarily in the region of Turkey, so to the north of both the Mitanni and the Egyptians. Now the Mitanni and the Pharaoh would have recognized the advantage of combining forces against their common foe and therefore a peace treaty would make good strategic sense. This peace, well, peaceful alliance, allowed Amenhotep to turn his ruling attention inward. And a lack of war meant that the royal treasury could focus on building projects. Amenhotep's construction projects were mostly concentrated on expanding smaller temples throughout Egypt. He also continued the work of his father and expanded the temple complex at Karnak, he built temples in Nubia, further cementing their attachment to Egypt. Amenhotep ended up ruling for 26 years, dying in the year 1401 BC. And to set this in the biblical narrative, if the exodus occurred in 1446 BC, during his father's reign, then the 40 years of wandering ended about five years before his death. Amenhotep's mummy was discovered in 1898 by French Egyptologist Victor Lorette in the Valley of the Kings. It was found in its original sarcophagus. In the 20th century, his mummy was examined via x-ray, where it was determined he died around the age of 40, which aligns with the 26-year reign. Amenhotep was succeeded by his son, Thutmose IV, but, like his father, he was not the oldest son, and little is known about his older brother, other than that Thutmose IV went to great lengths to establish the legitimacy of his reign. Some researchers propose that Thutmose somehow expelled his older brother in order to usurp power. According to a stele, which I'll get to in a second, while the young prince was on a hunting trip, he stopped to rest under the head of the Great Sphinx of Giza, which at the time was buried up to the neck in sand. While resting under the Sphinx's head, he fell asleep and had a dream in which the Sphinx told him that if he cleared away the sand and restored the monument, he would become the next pharaoh. 
every younger brother princess's dream. After completing the restoration of the Sphinx, he placed a carved stone tablet, now known as the Dream Stele, between the two paws of the Sphinx. The restoration of the Sphinx and the text of the Dream Stele would serve as propaganda for Thutmose, intending to convey the legitimacy of his rule. He would end up reigning for only 10 years, and little is known about this period. He did suppress a minor uprising in Nubia during his eighth year. He also probably maintained control of Syria, as at least one stele mentions this. And remember, this was most likely the period when the Israelites were finally getting settled and taking control over small parts of Canaan. Within the borders of Egypt, he continued the New Kingdom's tradition of construction. He finished his grandfather's obelisk at Karnak, the tallest one ever raised in the land. There were other initiatives at Karnak, including new prayer chapels, some of which still stand. And he continued the peaceful relationship with the Matani, to the point of marrying a Matani princess. But his reign was short, probably only 10 years, ending around 1391 BC. Like his predecessors, he would be buried in the Valley of the Kings, and his mummy was discovered at the same time as his father's. Modern medical analysis of his body indicates that he was in extremely poor health at the time of his death, which is actually a truism, unless you meet your fate accidentally. But his health seemed worse than average. Recent examination likely indicates he suffered from epilepsy, maybe genetic. And there is even the theory that this condition could explain the vision he had recorded on the dream stele, the one at the Sphinx. Of course, so could naked ambition. Thutmose number four would be succeeded by his son, Amenhotep III. And this Amenhotep is the third iteration of that name, but he is also sometimes referred to as Amenhotep the Magnificent. So he must have done something great. I'll get to that in a minute. He ruled from about 1386 to 1349 BC. So, once again, most likely when the Israelites were getting settled and then beginning to consolidate their power in Canaan. Amenhotep was likely crowned as king while he was a child, probably due to the untimely death of his father. It's believed that he was somewhere between 6 and 12 years old when he took the throne. And given his age, he most likely had a regent. What is not known, though, is who this regent was. During his long reign, Egypt is thought to have reached its peak of both prosperity and culture. It truly was the best of times to be an Egyptian. The pharaoh was in contact with the leaders of Assyria, Mitanni, Babylon, and Hattai, all as seen in the Armana letters. The foreign rulers would reach out to Egypt with monetary requests, the reasons for such solicitations is a bit unclear, perhaps to buy loyalty. And Amenhotep would quite frequently send lavish gifts of gold, probably to buy this loyalty or goodwill, in the hopes that the foreign leaders would be inclined to give in to his wishes. And they usually did. His generosity to friendly kings was well recorded and he enjoyed lucrative relationships with the surrounding nations. But the requests were not just for money. 
there is an unusual request embedded in all the inscriptions. The king of Babylon asked the pharaoh for a daughter to marry. The pharaoh refused, saying, From time immemorial, no daughter of the king of Egypt is given to anyone. And the reason was more than just to keep his daughter in Egypt. He claimed to have maintained the honor of Egyptian women in refusing requests to send them as wives to foreign rulers. Not only claiming that no daughter of Egypt had ever been sent to a foreign land, but that while he was king, no daughter would ever be sent. It's thought that had she married the Babylonian leader, Babylon may have then had a claim to the Egyptian throne. And in his refusal, the pharaoh may have signaled his perceived dominance over his neighbor. Overall, his reign was relatively peaceful and uneventful. The only recorded military activity by the king was the squelching of a rebellion in Nubia. Again. A rebellion that was stopped seemingly with ease. Again. Amenhotep was known as a great hunter and sportsman, with an inscription claiming that the total number of lions killed by his majesty, with his own arrows, from the first to the tenth year, meaning the first decade of his reign, was 102 wild lions. Now when you consider that he was a child when he took the throne, the claim certainly seems less believable. Like father, like son, always spinning tall tales. He was also a steadfast supporter of the ancient Egyptian religion, and, in this, found a perfect outlet for his greatest interest, the arts and building projects. More on that in a minute. Unlike many of his predecessors, who were the sons of the previous pharaoh and a lesser wife, Amenhotep was the father of two sons with his great royal wife. Their first son, Crown Prince Thutmose, died before his father, and so his second son, Amenhotep IV, and who would later change his name to Akhenaten, succeeded Amenhotep. And Amenhotep III may have also been the father of a third child, named Sminker, who would later succeed Akhenaten and briefly ruled Egypt as pharaoh. It's thought that his successor, Akhenaten, was not a junior co-regent to him, which was also a break from the norm. At least there is currently no conclusive evidence of a co-regency between Amenhotep III and his son and successor. At least that was the long-held belief. In February 2014, the Egyptian Ministry for Antiquities proposed that Akhenaten shared power with his father for at least eight years. This theory was based on findings from the tomb of his father's vizier. In the tomb are carvings of the names of both Amenhotep and Akhenaten side by side. But this also could suggest that Amenhotep had only chosen his son Akhenaten to succeed him. Keep in mind that there are no inscriptions that definitely state the two reigned jointly. Researchers believe that in his final years, and largely based on drawings, he suffered from arthritis and this led to pronounced obesity. His suffering was apparently so bad that a few scholars believe that he requested and received from his father-in-law, Tushrata, the king of the Mitanni, a statue of Ishtar of Nineveh, their goddess of healing, believing that this idol could possibly cure him of his various ailments, which was not only the two afflictions mentioned earlier, but also teeth abscesses. 
and his mummy definitely confirms many of these theories. A forensic examination of it shows that he was probably in constant pain during his final years due to his worn and cavity-pitted teeth, which, at least to me, would seem to make eating more difficult and should have at least had a positive impact on his obesity. But who knows? What we do know is that the Matani king's daughter was a lesser wife of the pharaoh and not the mother to Amenhotep's heir. So, unlike the fear faced by his father, the Mitanni would have no claim to the Egyptian throne. Amenhotep died during his 38th year of rule, so around 1353 BC, and was interred in the Valley of the Kings. When he died, at least from an examination of his mummy, he is thought to have been between 40 and 50 years old. During his reign, like many of his predecessors, he expanded the temple at Karnak, but his greatest work was probably his ginormous mortuary temple, located on the west bank of the Nile. When it was built, it's thought to have been the largest religious complex in Thebes. But like all things real estate, the three most important factors are location, cubed. And in his case, he made the unfortunate decision to build in a floodplain, the Nile floodplain. Fewer than 200 years after his death, it had been flooded and ruined. And later pharaohs would recycle his building materials into projects of their own. When the flooding, ruin, and stone thieving was done, the only things remaining were what were known as the Colossi of Memnon, which are two massive stone statues about 59 feet or 18 meters tall. Due to his long reign, he was awarded with a said festival. I'll spare you all the details, and we do know a great deal about it due to phenomenal record keeping. But there is something noteworthy. After the said festival, Amenhotep III's status in their society transformed from being a near god to actually being considered divine. In that era, and as we've seen, few Egyptian kings lived long enough for their own such festival. Those who did commonly used the celebration as the affirmation of transition to divinity. And with that, I'll wrap up this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue the history of the New Kingdom. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. And for those of you that haven't, I'll give you a second to think about your reasons. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.